Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, February 21st, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The incoming head of national intelligence got his job because the outgoing head of national intelligence said something Trump didn't like. In fact, he didn't say it. His underling said it, but she was authorized to say it off with their heads. And that thing, that thing that shouldn't have been said, according to Trump, is, of course, the thing at the very center of Trump's ongoing, never-ending, ever-loving fight between Trump and his agencies. It's that the Russians, they are a-hacking once again, CNN reports. The president was angry with acting director of national intelligence Joseph McGuire following the meeting, according to a White House official. President Trump then forced out McGuire, replacing him with Richard Grinnell, a fierce game partisan Trump loyalist and current U.S. ambassador to Germany. Oh, excellent credentials and a great reason for a personnel change. Representative Devin Nunes, who was in the intelligence briefing, said on Fox, he didn't believe it. He just didn't believe it. He's not buying it. All this is, is they don't have anything to run on. And so they've got to make up Russia again. Nunes further added, these are new paranoid reports, which to our deep regret will continue to grow in numbers as the election day approaches. Naturally, they have nothing to do with the truth. Oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't Nunes. Could have been. It was Putin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. No relation. Now, in rejecting the information that Russia is upping its election interference game, and by the way, what are they doing? They're using servers within the U.S. to evade certain security protocols. Also, they are said to have infiltrated Iran's cyber warfare unit with the intent of launching attacks that might look like they're coming from Tehran. Okay, so that's some of the stuff going on. Remember, Nunes says doesn't believe any of this. So what happened was a staffer told the Intel Committee That this was going on because it's good, credible intelligence and because, of course, we should know. And then Joseph McGuire, who's the head of the intelligence agency, gets axed by Trump for authorizing this information to be imparted, this vital, essential information to be imparted to the very people who need this vital, essential information. Now, who's Joseph McGuire? Remember, this guy was the hand-picked director because, and he's only there because Trump got rid of the old national intel head, Dan Coats, because Dan Coats was disloyal. Then Trump could have picked Sue Gordon, who was the longtime deputy director and seen by experts as the logical choice, but she was not picked because it was questioned whether she would be loyal. We should also note that Joseph McGuire had no direct intelligence experience, but Trump liked him because of McGuire's military background. He was a SEAL Team 6 commander, but he was ousted, as was Dan Coats, who was a stalwart Republican senator for 18 years. All of these loyal Republicans or loyal military men could not be loyal to the even greater cause that is Donald Trump. This is big. This is huge, but it's hard to think that any consequence will befall the president. I've got to admit, 
as much as I was disgusted by this story, I was attracted to some other thing Trump did and said. It was great comedy fodder. He was speaking before a festival crowd and he he played Oscar critic. How bad were the Academy Awards this year? Did you see? And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? We got enough problems with South Korea with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. And I had this whole plan to riff on the ridiculousness of Trump weighing in on Parasite. Bong Joon-ho, Snowpiercer was destroyed in editing. They say, people say, but you do see glimpses of the film. It could have been. Like I had I had this whole plan. I'd go Trump, Oscar. Why? Can Greta Gerwig say little women, but I can't. Why? But you know... I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because, A, people hate when I do voices, especially Trump. It's pretty terrible. I'll admit that. But, B, we have to keep our eye on the critical issues with the president and not with the president issuing a criticism. The Russians are hacking again, and anyone who tries to raise a concern is getting fired. The Russians have found in Trump a vector for their goals. They plan to tuck their policies inside his re-election efforts and to spread the rot from within. He is a host and they are nothing more than a very serious national security threat. This is my point. On the show today, the spiel is given over to an antan twig, a bit of antan twiggery. So necessary in these troubled times. But first, my sons just came back from Mount Vernon you know what they were taken with? A little structure off to the side called the Dung Repository. They made songs about it. Now, I wish I'd known that when I talked to my next guest, historian Alexis Coe, who has reconsidered everything about George Washington, except maybe the dung part. Here now, talking about her book, You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington, Alexis Coe. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. If you achieve greatness on a college football field, you might be given the Heisman Award. Well, there is a new award. It is the Thigh Man of History Award. The Thigh Man of History are those who looked at George Washington thighs and said, my, what specimens they are, what mighty hammocks. This is an observation of Alexis Coe. She is the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington, a biography that in form and substance tries to do something that uh, no biography of George Washington has ever done. And I would say she does it successfully. Hello, Alexis. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Why? Why are all these male historians so damn obsessed with the man's thighs? At first, I thought that it was hero worship. I thought maybe they were into him. Mm -hmm. I looked at different portraits of founding fathers and their thighs, and they're nice, but yeah. Hamilton's are also very nice. Mm -hmm. And it's inappropriate anyway for us to be commenting on his thighs any more than we would a woman's. We have to, you know, be uniform when we're applying these standards. It has to do with his virility. It has to do with his masculinity. But 
the thing that always struck me as odd when I would approach Washington biographies, and I always read presidential biographies, at least three in conversation, so you can really emerge with a strong sense of the person, is that they worshipped him Mm -hmm. to the point where they just couldn't see anything else. It's not just the thighs. They start out their books in the exact same manner. They say, he's too marbled to be real. I'm going to humbly endeavor to break him free. And then they proceed in the exact same manner. So if you've got a thousand page book, if that's your deal, and you're Mm -hmm. spending 20 pages talking about his thighs and how manly he was, and even though he didn't have children, it was totally okay because he was definitely masculine. There's something weird going on. As much as historians obsess with the thighs, from everything that I read, his stature, meaning his actual height, was really important then. And same guy, six inches shorter, wouldn't have been the father of the country, I get the impression. Absolutely. If you'll notice Madison, Adams, all the other guys who were of slightly slightly smaller stature are often described as being annoying. And I do think it's really significant that Washington was 6'2". He had the great... Jefferson was tall also. Yeah. He doesn't get... And and Adams was the annoying one and Jefferson was a lot of things, but he wasn't called annoying. Washington is an athlete. And I don't know why we can't just say he was graceful. He was like an athlete. The thing that Washington clearly had, the quality that all these historians spend, you know, hundreds of pages trying to describe is the thing we can't describe now of a person you meet at a party, which is that they're charismatic. He was charismatic. It's very hard to capture. At one point, I just say that. Yeah. We have to take their word. Trying, without seeming to show the effort. He wasn't seen as trying too hard. Obviously, you chronicle all the ways that he strategized how to win friends and influence people. But yeah, he let the action come to him and he could because he towered over most people of his day. And he was also incredibly controlled, not just because he liked to keep his cards close to his chest. He was self-conscious. He worried that his education next to all these guys who went to Harvard and the College of William and Mary, um, all these people who were known as brilliant (laughs) diplomats that he, you know, who had to drop out of school when he was still an adolescent, that he was deficient and his dentures were super uncomfortable and he didn't like showing them and he couldn't, you know, open his mouth to a certain degree. So It all makes sense. He's not this like superhuman, amazing specimen who we describe in terms and ways you would find in a romance novel. His jaw was rippling and, you know, it's 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 a lot. (laughs) So what did you find about him that lived up or maybe even surpassed either the myth or your expectations? I don't know if it's the myth, but, you know, when you go to Mount Vernon, it is a beautiful beautiful estate. It has a lot of different farms. It is also a forced labor camp. And you see a lot of the things that he tried to do. And and what I really understood is instead of just telling me he was a businessman, I really understood how important that was to him to succeed in that sense as a capitalist and also how much he enjoyed it. You know, he spent a lot of time thinking about different ways he could work the enslaved community harder and more efficiently. And so I think for me to hear that he's so happy at Mount Vernon and it's so romantic and genteel and all of these things doesn't do it. But to actually see what it was about Mount Vernon, then I get it. Yeah. And I think that whatever leadership is, and maybe there are parts of leadership that are unfair and based on subjectivity, he had it. The way the other founding fathers talk about him was different from how they talked about any of the rest of them. Like, he wasn't a Superman, and many of them, you know, tried to politicize around him. But 
it always seems to me, even from your book and everything else I read, that there was this, they set him apart. They set him apart. They had an incredible amount of respect for him. They envied the way other people talked about him. And they also did find him to be slippery. At one point, Jefferson says he's going to exit the presidency and he's going to get away with everything and not take the blame for anything. And we're going to get it just like usual. It's so bitter. And I think that that is absolutely true, that they respected him. They feared him a little bit. And they also felt like he got to live by different standards. And that's still true. If you think about how modern audiences feel about the founding fathers, there are so many emotions when it comes to Jefferson. He's such, you know, there, there's the hypocrisy. We want him to be the great things that he said and that he wrote. With Adams, you can joke about him. He's sort of fun with, you know, all these different people. With Washington, people are like, Myths. Yes. Why do you think that he has not been able to be portrayed as a great dramatic figure? Uh, I mean that in movies, in, I guess he's pretty good in the, in the musical Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But he seems, it seems that, I don't know if it's that he doesn't have that, you know, fatal flaw, although you portray that he does. But so far, he has defied characterization in fictionalized or semi-fictionalized form. As much as he is on the dollar bill and our first founding father, there's no great portrayal of him that resounds, yes, across the ages like there have been of Lincoln. Lincoln, we have photos of, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really significant. A presidential scholar at the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society once had the gall to call Washington vanilla to my face. And I think that that is true. That's how people see him. I don't think it's true when it comes to Washington. He was constantly plotting and scheming and being pretty awful and, you know, exacting. And then he would get really excited about odd things like mules and he would name his dog Sweet Lips. You know, he is a fully formed person to me. And odd to you and I, Alexis. I mean, back then, mules were really important. Well, they were hard to get to. <laughs> they were illegal to export from Spain. And that's the only time I really see him trying to be like, use his influencer, if you <laughs> yeah, will. He yeah. he really wants one for free. Well, isn't Mount Vernon, I mean, isn't the placement of Washington, D.C. like a little bit lining his pocket? I mean, didn't they speculate on where that should go and they made some money on that? It was the Great Compromise. Hamilton wanted his bank and the Southerners, of which we have to remember Washington was, wanted a Southern location. And of course, he was thrilled that it was 15 miles from Mount Vernon. The same way he was thrilled that Philadelphia, the second location of the presidential house, was close enough to Mount Vernon to rotate his enslaved people out every six months lest they be free, which was the rule of the city. So I've interviewed Chernow, and he said if he didn't like one of his subjects, just given how far and how deep he goes, it would be an unenjoyable experience for him. So he either comes to like or starts and chooses a subject that he's interested in and thinks he will like. Well, how about you and liking your subject? And how did being with George Washington for so long play out in your life? I believe that Chernow likes Washington. I think, but also Rockefeller and also yes, Hamilton, and he, yes. You know. But the problem with being as obvious about your admiration and your affection for your subject is that it creates a bias, mm-hmm. and you want to see the best in them. This biography has been called irreverent a little bit. Yours, yes, mine, yes. And my question is, why are we accepting of reverence? It skews. The perception. So, so with someone like Chernow, 
the problem with him liking Washington is he can't see faults very easily. So he can't say, hey, you were sort of negligent in this position or, you know, why didn't you admit that sooner? Or let's say there's a rumor that, you know, his mother sent a letter of complaint to the Virginia Assembly. He doesn't check it out. He just says it as fact. He Uh says she sent this letter. She didn't. I wouldn't say that I love him or I hate him or I feel any of those things to me because we have a professional relationship. So I'm not going to comment on his thighs and I'm not going to say that I like him. I will say that he is a fully formed person to me. And so he has a lot of things I really dislike and find very disappointing and a lot of things that I am in absolute awe about. Would America be America if it weren't for George Washington? No, it really wouldn't. There was no other man for the job. That's true. And we can play this game. We can say, you know, what if Washington had emancipated his slaves? The things that we project onto Jefferson. I've talked to Annette Gordon-Reed about this, and she said, you know, Jefferson, if he had done all the things that we want him to, we wouldn't know his name. I'm not sure if that's true with Washington. I don't know if we would have been a country if he had emancipated his slaves during his lifetime, but I think a lot of things would have happened a little bit sooner. All the books end on Washington emancipating his slaves. And I go a little bit farther than that. And I talk about the Civil War when his vault had been built and this was his dream to have this verdant spot. What's interesting is that both sides, the Confederacy and the Union, they both come and they they pay homage, they pay their respects, and they engrave their initials into the stones because they both felt like he belonged to them. They both, for political reasons, had to lay claim to him. Yes. The Southerner saying Washington saw himself as a Virginian first. Yes. And they cherry-picked what they thought was significant and true about him, and they were both right. And I think that is really important when you think about Washington and our founding and our country. Well, a great leader can also represent the dreams and aspirations of all people, could be a little bit of a blank slate. Yes, and we can't expect these people to be perfect. I have never known a perfect president in my lifetime. And And you mentioned Chester A. Arthur, which is weird. Yeah, (laughs) my goodness. I mean, just up and down with that man. You know, it starts out so promising, and then it's awful, and then it's good again, and who knows? I love Chester A. Arthur. What a redemption story. I know, (laughs) and America loves a redemption story. That's why we love Chester A. Arthur. Yeah. (laughs) Mm, Don't tempt me. (laughs) Our only Vermont president, I believe. It's true. Some people spent a lot of time in Vermont, but they and they built houses, but they didn't actually live there. I think that this idea that we expect these men to be perfect, especially when it's a golden child, let's say like Kennedy or or someone who does the unthinkable like Washington, um, we're projecting our hopes and our dreams for ourselves onto them. The country has always been a mess. The leaders have always been incredibly flawed people. And that's okay. We've survived. It doesn't ensure that we will. What we should take from this is that people have fought very hard for what they believe in. Mm -hmm. They're not people who would naturally do this. You know, Washington was a reluctant revolutionary. He only did that when he had to. And then he changed course dramatically when he was president. You Never Forget Your First is the name of the book. It is a biography of George Washington, a biography the likes of which you haven't read before. Many charts and graphs and witticisms. And let us take the word irreverent in its least pejorative form and say that it applies to that. It applies to the book as well. It's an excellent read. Alexis co-wrote it. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you. And now... 
the spiel. It is an Antan twig. An Antan twig is our name from the Old English for a three-week period, right? It's not a fortnight. It's an Antan twig. And every Antan twig, or as we now judge them whenever the heck I want, but every Antan twig, let's just say, we correct errors if there are any. Sometimes there are. We issue clarifications, which are more satisfying than errors because, you know, errors so binary, right, wrong, clarifications. It's very just we're engaged in a dialogue, a dialogue that elevates us all. We answer listener mail, but also, and this is new, electronic mail. And now in this Antan Twig, I'll introduce something new that we do. We make confessions. Slate gist confessions. So in that interview you just heard a few minutes ago, you heard me ask, Alexis, would George Washington be president if he were six inches shorter? But that's not what I originally said. What I originally said was this. Same guy, six feet shorter, might not have been the father of the country. I sometimes get the impression. And you know what? I re-recorded it. And I almost never do that. Really, almost never. I came from NPR. The rule was you could retake an intro, but not a question. But why? Who does that serve? I mean, Alexis may may have been nicely playing along or or understanding what I meant or even heard it differently. I certainly heard it in my head differently. Clearly, I meant to say, would he be president if he were six inches shorter? But I wound up saying, would he be president if he were six feet shorter? So we retook it. I think, and my reasoning is, I think it's more service to you than to have to cut out the entire Q&A because it's confusing if you heard that and you get distracted and maybe you think she's even answering my question literally as stated. It's just so much better to very occasionally redo a question and that's what we did. Now I gotta say, if the president were six feet shorter, if George Washington were six feet shorter, I think the answer still may be you'd make him president. I mean, if you have a guy who led your army to defeat the British, the greatest army in the world, and that guy was only two inches, two, three inches, I mean, you'd want to, you'd be pretty proud of that guy, right? The sub-Smurf type figure who beat back the British. I mean, it would probably have cut into his surveying business way back when, two-inch George Washington. Mini George Washington, no match for Mighty Matt. Nope, I said I would not be doing voices. Other errors or disclosures or errata. Jake Stepp at all, but I was shocked, shocked, he writes, I was shocked to hear Mike describe Dick Sargent slash Dick York as being a part of I Dream of Genie, when of course he was the husband of Samantha Stevens on Bewitched. That is true. That was a bit of uh, Miss Dickery, I guess you could say. Then there was the time a few weeks or months ago when I attributed, misattributed the saying, the vice presidency ain't worth a warm bucket of spit. I said Albin Barkley said that. Incorrect. It was Charles Barkley. No, it was John Nance Garner. Garner was FDR's VP before Truman was. And Truman's VP was Albin Barkley. And by the way, in this whole thing, they didn't say warm bucket of spit. They said warm bucket of piss, but it was cleaned up to be more suitable for a family-friendly newspaper of the time. By the way, I found out an interesting fact. A couple days ago, I think literally two days ago, I was talking on the show about how even if they had the full medical records of every president, it wouldn't have really changed anything. Every president survived through his presidency, at least of natural causes. I uh, speculated maybe Wilson's medical records could have led us to believe that he'd have a stroke. But actually, I think his doctors at the time missed that. But, But it turns out that Albin Barkley 
wanted to run for president, tried to run for president in 1952 when Truman said he wasn't going to run, but he was opposed because of health reasons and age. And guess what? That turned out to be a prescient opposition because Alban Barkley died in 1956 before what would have been his first term was over. Warm bucket of piss, warm bucket of spit. He's playing with it a little bit. It turns out almost all idioms that have piss in them, you could change it to spit, and it works really well. Like, uh, he's all piss and vinegar. If you don't want to say that, you can say he's all spit and vinegar. That's perfectly fine. I think we understand it. Or, um, oh, they, those guys got into a real pissing contest. You can change it to a real spitting contest. That totally makes sense. Doesn't really work the other way. Because in comedy, if I see the dowager slip on a banana peel and land up on her keister, I wouldn't want to do a piss take. I'd probably want to do a spit take, piss take something else. Another correction, I went on and on and on about how, how Elizabeth Warren was the worst performing Massachusetts governor in the New Hampshire primary. What about Deval Patrick? A few people said, but only a few people, which reflects the results of New Hampshire. Here was an exchange that I was uh, privy to on Twitter because I was tagged. Carrie Littlejohn tagged me at Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I. That's my Twitter handle. I never miss a show, but one that had me talking a lot was the new Cosmic Crisp Apple. I told so many people about this new apple, and now I just ate one. Live in mid-Missouri, so we're slow on the uptake. Holy hell, if that's not a near-perfect apple. Which was fine. I certainly wanted to tell you about that I inspired a fan to eat an apple why you get into this game but replying to carrie's tweet at me was this reply thank you so much for the kind words carrie so glad you were able to give it a try give it a try that account was at the cosmic crisp the cosmic crisp apple has his or her own account and was thanking carrie for eating him doesn't happen every day another error I confuse Tammy Wynette with Patsy Cline. It happens. She, of course, is Tammy Cactus Tamara Wynette. And finally, I'd like to get into, it's actually been a months-long exchange with a Twitter follower of mine and listener to the show, a man named Nat. And uh, sometimes Nat reaches out to tell me things like, um, at Pescami, November 13th, 2018, your spiel today was remarkably ignorant, just saying. Thank you, Nat. But lately, he's been saying, that I've been saying Buttigieg wrong. November 9th, 2019. Could you please learn to say Buttigieg without making it sound like you're mocking his name? It's really obnoxious, and his name isn't that hard to say if you make some effort. I replied to him, as far as I know, I say it like he says it. And then a few days later, (laughs) Nat replies, no, you don't. Seriously, for someone who supposedly knows audio, you're surprisingly ignorant. Call him Pete or learn to say it right. Now, listen, I know there's no winning when you engage in a Twitter feud, but I don't want to say the guy's name wrong. And if this listener who's really impassioned knows that I'm saying it wrong, I wanted to know what the right way to say it. I did a lot of research. I looked up my interview with Pete Buttigieg, where, which starts with him saying his name, not on, not on the interview that aired, but he did say it to me. I've looked up all the ways to say it, how he says it. He says Buttigieg. I know phonetically that they tried to help people by making signs and t-shirts that say boot 
edge edge. So with this in mind, I replied to the fellow and said, you're great at insults and no proof or evidence. If you want to cite a time code or link to what you think is right, I can consider. Otherwise, it's a waste of my time. I have a theory. You think it's pronounced boot edge edge because it's not. And then Nat wrote, it's the tone you use every time you say it. Like it's a joke. You really don't hear it, which is weird. To which I replied, wait, you're saying the actual pronunciation is correct. But what you're hearing is that I'm sneering or mocking or have a tone that connotes negativity. That's what this has all been about. And that wrote, yep, something to work on. And so I shall. And so I shall, Nat. The Lobstar of the Antan Twig, which is our award who's given, that's given to the listener or Twitterer or emailer that most elevated the discourse, will not be Nat, but it will be shared this time between two great conversers. One is Carrie Littlejohn, and two is the Cosmic Crisp Apple. This is the first time in the history of an Antan Twig and a Lobstar that a fruit has gotten the Lobstar. I don't know how you, Carrie, and you, Cosmic Crisp, will split the award, Maybe with a Williams-Sonoma stainless steel apple slicer. I will leave that to you guys. Well, you guy and you edible fruit who is probably not going to like how this all plays out. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi, just associate producer, once quoted Dean Rusk as saying, the secretary of statesmanship isn't worth a keg of phlegm when it was actually Dean Acheson, and he said barrel of pus. Daniel Schrader, just producer, can't quite say Tulsi Gabbard without not only hissing, but throwing down a smoke bomb and rappelling towards the ceiling. The gist, if any of you heard me say the words Albin Barkley and thought I was dripping with condescension, I'll try to mask it better next time. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.